And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hands the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you do to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men rose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall live in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until you've drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing from us, just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall, see, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent the night among the people. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell, by that, fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction." Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it, into heap, made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until, until evening. And at sunset Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised it over a great heap of stones which stands there to this day. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. As is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the Lord, of, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Well, good morning, church. It's good to see everyone. You know, last Sunday, there was some unexpected brilliance emanating from this side of the church congregation. And after the service, I found out that Nathan Weibel, who many of you know, our, he's led our technical arts team. He's on our church staff like for the last eight years, I think. Anyway, he popped the question to Becky and she said yes. 
So congratulations to them. And uh, they will be getting married in the summertime at some point here. And we're just so happy for these guys. Uh, you know, I was thinking, and as I thought about that, I just, before I found out that they had engaged, I had talked with uh, Ricky and Emily Corona. And it was this time last year, we were getting ready for their wedding. And then Courtney and Ishmael's wedding. We had a lot of weddings last year. It's, it's just enjoyable as a church family to celebrate uh, new love and new homes together. And then of course, new life that we get to do when God blesses our marriages with children and we get to bring the babies up here and show them off. And what is, it's just one of the wonderful things about being a part of the family of God. One of the things I enjoy about being a pastor are those times. I enjoy the, the, the front end of new love and I also enjoy the back end. Occasionally, uh, a couple will want to renew their vows. Uh, normally, it seems like around maybe the silver anniversary at year 25 uh, or those zero years, like 30, 40. I think one of the first ones I did was a golden anniversary, 50 years. And I remember that uh, vow renewal especially because the husband uh, in the ceremony gave a rather long uh, testimony about their 50 years together and uh, walked us through the decades. But what was interesting uh, as he described the, how they met and the excitement and the joy of those first few years together. And they started with very little and they began to build a life together and the obstacles they overcame and the excitement of doing that together. But then he didn't flinch from acknowledging that there were plenty of times, especially when the honeymoon phase was over where uh, things weren't always peaceful, things weren't always good, that there was conflict at times and there were issues and obstacles that they struggled with and he didn't flinch in saying that the difficulties they experienced was due to their sinfulness, either his or hers, and he'd been married long enough to say it was mostly his, which was smart of him at that moment in time. Uh, but then he went on to talk about how they would then repent, and they would be reconciled as a couple, and they would come together, and God would give them the grace they needed to overcome whatever the issue was, the obstacles, and they, had, they built a life together with children and grandchildren and even great-grandchildren and a heritage from the Lord and, and I thought about that this week as I was thinking about these chapters that were in in the book of Joshua, because the, the story of their marriage is very much kind of a, an analogy for what we've seen in Joshua 6, 7, and now 8. You know, chapter six, the Israelites come in with all the excitement and exuberance of newlyweds. They're coming into the, to the, into the promised land for the first time and they're together and they're united, but they have this massive obstacle before them, Jericho. And yet they are faithful to God and they rely upon God and through his help, they overcome the city of Jericho, not losing one single person. Incredible time in the life of the nation of Israel only to be followed up with Joshua chapter seven, where there was sin. And as a result, the, the defeat of the Israelites occurs and there's discouragement and there's dismay and there's difficulty and there's fingers, maybe some what's going on and some initial finger pointing until ultimately we see here in chapter eight, repentance has occurred and there's reconciliation with God and restoration and they move forward to overcome the obstacles that are before them. Very similar to what 
that man described about his marriage. I want us this morning to hear what God has to say to us in chapter eight by first highlighting God's redeeming power. In these first 25 verses, thankfully, we begin to see that Achan's sin did not have the last word in the life of the Israelites. Now, if you weren't here last week, chapter seven was a, was a discouraging chapter. After the victory at Jericho, they, they send out spies. They end up taking 3,000 men from their army to go and attack this much smaller city, Ai, but a strategically important city, and they lose. They, they, they lose 36 men, and they're routed from the field of battle. They run away, and they're chased away by the citizens and the soldiers of Ai. The people of God are discouraged. They're, they, they begin to mourn. The leaders lay out before God and they begin to pray and cry out. And, and God hears their prayers and helps them to understand that the loss was due to the fact that an Israelite had sinned. Achan had ended up and then he discovered that it's Achan who had taken things from Jericho that had belonged to God. And he, along with the cooperation of his family, they hide it under the tent's floor in the ground. And as a result, God begins to punish Israel for the sin of Achan and his family. And of course, the chapter closes out with him being discovered and the family is discovered and they're taken to what will be known as the Valley of Achor, the Valley of Trouble. And Joshua says to him, because of the trouble that you have brought upon us, trouble will need be brought upon you. And Achan and his entire family line are removed from the earth and executed because of their sin. And then here in chapter eight, as, as we just saw the people now having repented, they've humbled themselves before God in genuine repentance and they've heard from God and they, they listen to him. They trust what he has to say and they, they follow his directions to the T and they set up an ambush and God has given them these directions. And now because they are ready to hear, they trust, they obey, the victory is theirs. The defeat was redeemed and they have now taken the day. The obstacles to their, their possession of the promised land have been removed because of their response to this sin and their willingness to listen and obey God. God's people through the ages have experienced this same reality in their lives as the Israelites did. Throughout the centuries, God's people have walked to earth. There has been this, genu this central truth and our relationship to God, that when we genuinely repent and we humbly trust God, he turns defeat into victory. Now, why is this the case? I would suggest to you that it's due to an image that is in verses 18 to 19. I deliberately didn't have Jacob read it because I wanted to read it to you, but you heard it alluded to later in chapter eight. In verse 18, we read this. As the battle begins, the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city, and the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place, and as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it, and they hurried to set the city on fire." Now church, whenever in the scriptures you hear a phrase repeated time and again, especially in a short uh, space, pay attention. This is intentional. And what you hear in those few verses is what? Repeatedly, Joshua what? Stretched out his hand. 
We read it later in chapter eight. And Joshua stretched out his hand. This image of Joshua stretching out his arm is important. It actually harkens back to earlier in the history of the Israelites, Moses. The first battle that Joshua led the army into against the Amalekites. They're fighting the Amalekites and Moses is standing on the, on the, the mountain overlooking the battleground. And what you see there is that when he gets, he holds his arms out and, and they have victory, but as he gets tired and his arms drop and droop, then the people end up losing. Until finally Aaron and her, they sitting down on a rock, they come underneath him, they hold out his arms so that they can stay outstretched for the remainder of the battle. And by doing so, the Israelites end up winning. So Moses, he later uses that image to, in a beautiful anthropomorphism. You know what an anthropomorphism, this is your 25 cent, this is the word that you get for your offering today, right? An anthropomorphism is when uh, something about our human bodies or our human experience is used to describe God in order to communicate uh, an important truth about God. And so Moses takes that idea of an outstretched arm, that anthropo, and makes it into an anthropomorphism and relates it to communicate God's power and his help for us. He will say to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 26, the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and then what? Outstretched arm. With great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. Church, all of us, we all know what it is like to suffer defeat or to end up living in defeat in some way because of maybe our sin or the sin of someone else and the consequences of their sins. Your defeats, your struggles, they, they probably look different than mine in some ways and they look similar in some ways, but so often the source of our suffering, the source of our defeat, so often it's the same. The cause is our sinfulness. It's the consequences of our sinfulness or the consequences of someone else's sin against us. Not all, some suffering is tribulation and trials from God, but many times what we experience in life as suffering or defeat in some way, our struggles, the, the cause comes right back to us. You know, there's no place for a victim mentality in the scriptures. The scriptures call us to own our junk. And the fact is, there's consequences to our sin and to our disobedience. And so while the source is often the same, the solution is always the same. Only God, only God can turn suffering into something that is good. Only God can redeem defeat and turn it into victory like he does in this passage for the Israelites, what he, like he does for us in our struggles and in our spiritual battles. And God can justly do this. God can be righteous while he redeems sometimes our own sin and turning it into something good. He can maintain his holiness because the Lord who delivered Israel with an outstretched arm would later take on flesh and stretch out both of his arms in order for us to be able to have victory. You think about it for a moment, just as Joshua with his outstretched arm ambushed and then destroyed the the enemies of Israel, 
Our greater Joshua stretched out his arms and he ambushed and defeated our greatest enemies. The apostle Paul sings exultantly in 1 Corinthians 15, oh death, where's your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the what? Victory, come on church, he gives us the what? Victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle John will write, everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. If we stop right there, we have a problem because now all of a sudden we turn victory into a self-glorifying statement. Oh, we overcome because of our faith. That's why verse five is so important. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes, who has faith that Jesus is the son of God? It's Jesus, the object of our faith, whose arms were outstretched for us on the cross that is able to turn suffering into glory, who can redeem defeat, turning it and transforming it into victory. Only Jesus can do this. And it is through humbly and continually repenting of our sin and our own self-righteousness and our own efforts at performing and impressing God. It's only by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And as we sang about this morning, his continuing ministry as our ascended Lord, that we experience victory through God's redeeming power. This picture of repentance, renewal, victory, it continues in the end of the passage with God's covenantal terms. In this passage, we see something interesting. We begin in verse 30 by reading, at that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law, There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. What is going on here? What is this all about? I mean, we can understand why they first come in and they attack Jericho. Strategic, important, you know, shore up our our rear guard got to have that city out of the way. We can understand why they go up the, up the path onto the highlands, under the road. They attack Ai, strategic city, gives them a, a secure base of operations from which they can go south, they can go north, that invasion can begin. It makes sense why they do this. So why, after defeating Ai, do they make about a 25 to 30 mile trip with a couple of million people to the valley of Shechem, 
the second valley between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. I mean, they go 25, 30 miles there, and then they turn around and they come back after this, this, these verses are done. And they come back to the area of Ai and they establish their camp. Why a 50 mile road trip with 2 million people having to walk, carry all their stuff? What's going on here? Well, what's going on is that Joshua is obeying God. He's obeying the instructions that God had given. He's obeying God's will as it was revealed to him through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 27. In Deuteronomy chapter 27, we read that when they cross the Jordan River, they were to build a monument of stones, and plaster those stones, which you remember back in Joshua chapter one and two or what, three, I think it's actually chapter three, uh, Joshua does that very thing. But in that chapter, they are also commanded after coming into the promised land to come to this spot between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and they are to do some specific things. This area is rich in Israel's history. In Genesis chapter 12, when Abram and Sarai, his name wasn't Abraham yet, they, they've left Ur of the Chaldees, obeying God's voice, they come into the promised land. This is the first place where they come. He pitches his tent here, and God comes to him in a vision and he says, Abram, I'm gonna give you all of this land. It's all going to be yours for you and for the generations to come. And he pronounced all of these blessings and promises to Abram and in response in this location, Abram builds this altar to God, the first altar and he worships God there. Later, he buys a cave, the cave of Machpelah. And, and he uses it to bury his wife, whose name has now been turned to Sarah. Later, he is buried there. His son Isaac and daughter-in-law Rebecca are buried there. Jacob, the father of Esau, is buried in that cave. The Israelites, in leaving Egypt, fulfilled a promise to Joseph, Jacob's son, that had been made 400 years before and they bring his bones out of Egypt. Yes, I know that's kind of scary, sweetie. And uh, they bring his bones out of Egypt and they bury them here in Shechem, fulfilling the promise to, to Joseph. Jacob, when he ultimately comes back from his tenure away, running from Esau, 14 years, and he comes back with a couple of wives, Leah and Rachel, he comes to this area and he buys land and he settles there and he too builds an altar and he worships there. And then he does something interesting, he digs a well. It was known as Jacob's well. And it will last for at least a couple of thousand years providing water for the people. It's a rich location. At the end of Joshua, we're gonna see how the Levitical priest take this city and it's turned into a city of refuge. Rich location in this area. So imagine this scene, you have these two mountains. You can see they get really close together. They're, they're only like 300 yards apart at their lo closest location. And, and there's an interesting geological aspect here. You can actually stand on Mount Ebal and somebody else can stand on Mount Gerizim and if you in a loud voice, you proclaim the 10 commandments, then the person on the other mountain can easily hear you. It's a natural amphitheater. And so you have half the tribes, six of the tribes are put over on Mount Ebal 
and an altar is built there with uncut stones, and then half of the tribes are put over on Mount Gerizim. That's the scene. That altar, those stones, there's plaster put upon the outside of them. And the law of God, maybe it was the 10 commandments, maybe more, we don't know, was etched into that plaster. And then the altar is assembled. All of this is in obedience to the instructions that they had been given in Deuteronomy chapter 27. Sacrifices take place, curses and blessings are read, very elaborate, why? Why the elaborate instructions of uncut stones? That first there's to be a burnt offering, before there can be a peace offering, and before the curse of the blessings are read, the curses have to be read. Well, the importance, the, the order is important. The, the burnt offering was acting as uh, a, an offering for the atonement of the sins of the people. Mount Ebal and its altar on Mount Ebal are associated in Deuteronomy chapter 27 with sin and with the curses of sin and disobedience. And what happens when God's people sin and disobey him? And so this order is important. God's instructions in this matter are important. The order is important because before there can ever be peace with God, there first has to be atonement for sin. And so first comes the burnt offering and it comes with an altar not made with human hands, signifying something that's important that our atonement, our forgiveness, it does not come about because of something that we bring to the table, that we do, not through our skill, not through our work or performance, do we get forgiveness. Salvation Church has always been by God's grace through faith in Him, not of our works. So this order is important. First, there's atonement. First, there's the reading of the curses. Cursed is the man who has any God other than Yahweh and the people shout together, amen. Cursed is the man who makes a graven image, amen. Cursed is the man who steals, amen. Cursed is the man who murders, amen. Cursed is the man who has sexual relationships and, and there's a lot of them, amen. Amen, 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 amen. Cursed is the man who moves the boundary markers, amen. They're having a service where they, they acknowledge the importance of God's law, his holiness, and them obeying that. <clears throat> and they also have to acknowledge they've broken those very same commands and they need forgiveness. And so the burnt offering is done. And then once that is accomplished, you have the peace offering and you have the blessings that are read. Mount Ebal's always associated with the curses, Mount Gerizim with the blessings of the covenant of God. Ultimately, this scene of blessings and curses is meant to cause all of God's people through the millennium to pause, to ponder, to worship what is taking place here. Because of the curse of sin, and our disobedience, the perfect Lamb of God, will one day come to this very location. One day, he will sit at Jacob's well, and he's thirsty. By this time, 
This area is the forbidden land for Israelites. It's inhabited by the Samaritans. And the Samaritans are looked down upon by the Israelites as being unclean, unpure. They're half-breeds. They're lower than low. I mean, they're down there beneath the slaves and the dogs. So, so deep was the hatred and the derision and scorn and what we would say today, the racism of the Israelites towards the Samaritans that they would not walk through that section of the promised land. They would go out across the Jordan River, come down the other side, and then come back across the Jordan River at Jericho in order to go from either Galilee to Jerusalem or from Jerusalem to Galilee. They would not take the shortest trip, the shortest distance between two points and walk through this land. They wouldn't do it because it was unclean. And here in John chapter four, you find Jesus sitting right smack dab in the middle of the valley of Shechem at Jacob's well. And he's thirsty. And a woman comes to him and he says, would you get me some water? And she's shocked. Wait a second, you're a Jew asking me a Samaritan and on top of that, a Samaritan woman, don't get any lower than that for water. And he engages with her in conversation And he will tell her, this woman who is living in adultery, that the the forgiveness for her sins will not happen at the temple of worship that has now been built on Mount Gerizim. You see, the, the hatred went both ways. And the Samaritans said, oh, it's not, we're gonna have our own temple. We're not gonna go to Jerusalem to that temple, but the Jews will have our own temple and they built it on Mount Gerizim. And Jesus says, your forgiveness is not um, through what's taking place at that temple on that mountain right there. And neither is your forgiveness going to come through through what's happening at that temple in Jerusalem. Instead, your forgiveness is going to come through me. He tells her the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, am he. For anyone who ever doubts the deity of Christ or who Jesus is, take the words right here that Jesus says, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. I am the anointed one, the one who is being sent by God so that what is taking place in these temples is no longer necessary because I will be the last, the eternal high priest. I will be the last, the eternal, the perfect lamb of God, who will shed his blood for his people's sins. Atonement, forgiveness, eternal life, and the blessings of the new covenant, they come through the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And like Ai, or like the king of Ai, this happens because he too is hung on a tree outside the gates of his city fulfilling the law that says, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. He endures that curse and all the curses of the law 
so that we can enjoy the blessings of eternal life and the blessings of the new covenant. The promise that he made to that Samaritan woman on that day at Jacob's well is the same promise that he makes to every one of us today. He said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. If you're here this morning and you're thirsty for eternal life, Jesus is encouraging you to repent of your sin, to turn from whatever it is that you are relying upon to in some way encourage God to give you eternal life and instead acknowledge how futile that effort is. Acknowledge how futile it is to live self-righteously by works and instead commit your life to him in faith. It's always been the same, church. Genuine repentance, humbly trusting, believing in our Lord. Salvation has always been the same. And this morning, if you are in that place where you've yet to trust in Christ, today can be your day of salvation. I would encourage you, if you're thirsty, drink from the well that gives everlasting satisfaction. And Christian, are you thirsty this morning? You see, we don't come to the well and just drink once. We drink every day, throughout the day. If you're thirsty, I wanna encourage you, come to this one who satisfies all thirst, the one who is able to redeem suffering into victory, the one who's able to turn defeat into something that is unimaginably glorious. Only he can do this. As we turn our focus our hearts this morning to the Lord's Supper. There's one more aspect of this chapter to consider. There's been God's redeeming power and his covenantal terms, but in these last few verses, what you see is that God's people are renewed. They have this reading of the law. And anyone who ever makes a little funny comment about how long a sermon goes, these guys stood for four hours at least, assuming it was read at a normal pace, to hear. So I don't ever want to hear anything about sermon length. <laughs> Four hours. Well, okay. Uh, we're not them. I get it. But this is an important scene for the Israelites. It's teaching us something that within the, the context of God's family, we regularly need covenant renewal. This scene in Joshua 8 is a sacred time for them for the Israelites, it reminded them of who they were. It reminded them of their identity. It reminded them of how important it is to repent of sins and to live by faith, trusting in their savior, committing themselves to obeying him. In church, nothing has changed through the millennia. God's people still need this. We too need these sacred moments like this where we renew our identity in Christ, times where we renew our commitment to live for him, times where we acknowledge where we aren't living for him, a time where we turn to him and trust him and repent so that he can bring victory into our lives 
through his grace and his power. With the Lord's Supper, we're acknowledging the importance and the necessity of Jesus's sacrifice for us. And we're also claiming the blessings that come with the new covenant. This is a sacred moment. And we regularly need this covenant renewing observance within the context of God's family. For those of you who are online, I'm glad that we have the ability to minister to you in this way. But if you are physically able to be with us in a church service, I wanna encourage you to turn off the TV next week and come join us. Because we, as the people of God, and you, as a member of God's family, need this meal right here. It's that important. It is something that can't be observed with Doritos and Kool-Aid on your living room couch. It's meant to be done here. We call this a sacrament. It's a sacred time. And because it's a sacred time, we want to come to it with a clean hand and clean heart. The, the, the apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we should examine ourselves before taking this meal to ensure that to the best of our abilities, we're not holding on to unrepented sin. So if you're a Christian this morning, you are trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You don't have to be a member of our church. You are part of the family of God as we are part of the family of God. You're welcome to take this meal with us. But let's start by first bowing our heads, spending some time in prayer. And if you did not get the elements while you do that, please raise your hand and we'll pass them out to you. Let's bow our heads in quiet prayer.